Hello, listeners. Welcome to Live at the Gargoyle, a podcast dedicated to interviews with Manitoba-based creators, especially those in the theatre arts. I'm Andrew Davidson, owner of the Gargoyle Theatre in downtown Winnipeg's West End, and today I am overjoyed to be here with Lara Ray. Comedy has been in Lara's blood from the start, beginning with a comedy duo in, in Toronto in the 1990s, and, her, and that experience helped her to found, co-found the Winnipeg Comedy Festival in 2002. She was the festival's longtime artistic director, but stepped away from those duties in 2019 to concentrate on other challenges. In addition, she has a long history as a writer. She's been nominated three times for a Canadian Comedy Award, as well as being nominated for a Gemini Award for her co-development and writing work on Little Mosque on the Prairie. Lara was also a co-creator and writer on the television show Delmar and Marta, and in radio, she was the creator of the series Monsoon House, starring Russell Peters. Of particular interest to me, as a theatre owner, are the plays that Lara has written. How Do You Know When You're Done, Fragments, and most recently, Dragonfly. But okay, there's still more. She works as an instructor in the Department of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Winnipeg, and in 2021, she was honored with a Manitoba 150 Woman Trailblazer Award presented by the Nellie McClung Foundation. This award is given to women leaders, researchers, and community builders whose work has made a significant contribution in shaping the world around us. Stage at the Gargoyle Theatre. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I don't know how we're going to cover all this, but we're going to launch right into it. Sure. And I'd like to launch in from the start. Born in Glasgow, is that correct? I was born in Glasgow, Cathcart, Glasgow, in uh, 1963. Okay. At a time when, you know, the the Gorbals, which were the poorest area of the city where my grand, grandfather um, had grown up, um, which were very much kind of Angela's Ashes-style tenements, okay. were being torn down. Uh, the bottom had fallen out of the main industry at Glasgow at the time, the manufacturing and shipbuilding, and uh, it was not a, not a happy place. And uh, the revitalization of the city would come, you know, uh, towards the end of that decade. And so in the meantime, my dad, who was a very unhappy electrician, um, and my mother uh, decided um, initially that we were going to come to Canada to visit my aunt, who had already set up here with my grandmother um, for a protracted visit. But after investigating the costs, you know, in 1972 to fly to Canada and how long we would stay and so on, the, I guess the question was put on the table uh, as to whether or not uh, immigration would be a, would be a good thing for our family. And I think that across the board that was one of the most important decisions my parents ever made in their lives and um, I, I think it transformed our, our family and it transformed our opportunities and I don't think um, I would have survived in Scotland for a bunch of reasons. I would love to go back there. I mean I have been back but I mean you know I could I can at this stage of my life maybe imagine a period where I would be back there working and so on still very connected to the country and its culture, but certainly at the time, this Toronto in the 70s was, was a much more vibrant and exciting place. Do you, 
you would have been about nine years old when this move happened. Yes, yeah. Do you remember how you felt at the time? Did you know that you were going to like Toronto before you yeah, arrived? Yeah, or? yeah. Because, you know, it was the beginning. It was before the internet, of course, but it was the beginning of an understanding of how much of a sway American culture would have on, on the world. Right. And Canadian culture, in, in my mind, with the exception of specifics like Mounties, and Buffalo, and indigenous people who I, I, I knew a great deal about, you know, because I was very interested in, you know, I had all the kids' books that had all these kind of stories. I wasn't completely naive in thinking we would ar arrive, you know, in a, in a painting from 1890. Um, you know, I knew that uh, Toronto was an enormous city, um, but at the same time, this, you know, the vastness and the exciting opportunities and the, the modernization of the city. And we were in Toronto at the time of incredible growth and development for that city, for better or worse. Um, when we arrived, Montreal was the most populous country, uh, uh, city in Canada. Oh, okay. At just under two million. Um, and then in the first few years of arriving in Toronto, that, that, that changed, you know, it changed in, in 76 with uh, politics you know, and major uh, Anglo companies, Sun, Sun Life and so on, leaving. Uh, but um, Toronto became the center, you know, of the universe, you know, in, in, in that joking sense. And, you know, not long after we arrived, um, you know, the CN Tower went up, you know, and then it was just the downtown just became a, a cosmopolis of um, skyscrapers and, you know, and, and, and diversity. And diversity. what was your uh, childhood like? Was it artistic? Did you move into the theater arts at all? Were you sporty? It was, uh, you know, uh, it was very homogeneous for one. Okay. I had seen virtually no people of color. Um, there was a, um, and I mean, even outside of white, what used to be called wasps, mm -hmm. never mind. The Catholics lived on the other side of the Clyde. Um, there were no uh, Jews in our life, as far as I know. Even though Glasgow has a, you know, a fairly long-standing history of, of, of Jews and Jewish culture, um, you everyone was the same. Okay. You know, everybody was the same, uh, which was you know uh, cohesive in some ways, but also a challenge for me because I knew very early on uh, I wasn't the same. You know, and so I had this going on uh, in in me as well. So, uh, as a as a person coming of age, and if you feel somewhat different, how did that manifest in your life? Uh, did you find yourself performing? Did you find yourself rebelling, acting out? <coughs> how how did it happen? For yeah, you? I mean, uh, I grew up in a very cultured family, and this this you know not not. Uh, cultured in the sense that we went to a lot of culture uh, events um, because you know we were we were not uh, wealthy. Um, I mean, we were in the same economic situation as everybody else. Uh, I, I I never recall ever wanting for anything, you know. But by North American standards, you know, uh, there would be slightly more privation, you know. But a lot of that had to do with, you know, Victorian plumbing. You know, and, 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 and shitty, you know, just shitty cuisine and things like that. Like, I, I, I remember never wanting for anything as a, as a child. 
Um, but you know, it uh, the, the 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 there was a great interest in music. My dad listened to a lot of music, um, and so I, as a child, exposed to Frank Sinatra, you know, Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, there was certainly an appreciation of classical music, although there wasn't a lot of it in the house growing up, so this was an interest I developed and my sister developed later. And then the other one, even as a child, and especially when we moved to Toronto, um, cinema and the movies. Uh, my mother would just basically sneak us into any movie that she wanted to see as a child. And I grew up in a home where, you know, my parents weren't irresponsibly morally, but we could we could basically read or uh, find out about anything we wanted to, you know, within reasonable limits. So it seems and like so it was a, an environment in which uh, an appreciation of the arts and culture was totally definitely fostered. And very early on, uh, especially from my dad, and not in a, not in a pedantic way, but just this idea that to dismiss things out of hand. And I, I, I encountered this later in uh, when I was in Alcoholics Anonymous with um, a quote from Herbert Spencer about uh, uh, one of the most uh, profound barriers to to development and and, and knowledge and self expression is is to have a contempt prior to understanding. And so to me, uh, that really manifested those two messages from Spencer and also from my dad and the idea, if you weren't into something, you should find out uh, more about it, right? right. Uh, so if opera sounded like people screaming, there seemed to be a tremendous number of people who didn't think that way, and many of them were very admirable people yeah and the art form itself was celebrated and so this was on you right this this was a clear message and healthy to some degree but but not entirely because i think in my case it developed into somewhat of an obsession and i still to this day one of my main motivators and triggers is the idea of of anyone thinking i don't know something or that i'm stupid and so if I go to a bookstore and there's like a 400-page biography of somebody, uh, and I think, uh, and I can just tell by the spine and the publisher that it's not frivolous, like hmm. she's the hottest star on YouTube, right? You know, um, you know, somebody comprehensive. It's a comprehensive life of somebody that lived, you know, usually in the 20th century, and I literally have no idea who this person is. Don't recognize the name. I will at the very least read the gatefold on both sides. And then I'll, I'll open it up, I'll look at all the pictures, and I will cram that information. Yeah. Just so the next day, if somebody says, uh, Slobodan Milosevic is <laughs> up to his old tricks, I'm like, you know, leader of, you know, Serbia, blah, 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 and then it all comes flying out, right? You know, very much a kind of a trivia personality. Not yeah. trivial, but trivia, you know, it's knowing... True. Right, and then my dad used to joke that you become a mine of useless information. Oh, I don't think any of I that. I don't think any of it's any useless, of useless, and I don't think he meant yeah. it in that harsh way. But one of the things that helped me get by and fit in with people would I was very much the "did you know" person. Okay. Did you know? Right. You know, and so I could entertain people with that, with amusing anecdotes and stuff I picked up. That raconteurship, 
was something that I figured was a way in which I may be able to fit in with other people. That and an ability, and it allows, also allows you to be a bit um, chimerical and a bit, a bit like a chameleon. Right. And to really fit in and get along in, in many environments. I've got to assume as well, uh, because for a lot of people, you're maybe best known for your comedy work. Yes, yeah. Uh, that comedy would have served a similar purpose. Oh, yeah. Um, when did you really start developing uh, that as a skill? You know, my dad is uh, my dad is a funny guy. You know, my dad is a funny, witty person. Uh, my mother is very intelligent, and so she can be uh, funny. Um, and and uh, we grew up with a great appreciation of British humor, and so I was very familiar with the the two Ronnies and Monty Python, and we were allowed to watch all this kind of stuff. And so I began to realize that telling jokes and so on was was something people enjoyed, but the watershed moment for me was in grade seven when Barney Miller was on the air. You know, remember the sitcom with Hal Linden? Oh, I really loved it. The Police, yeah. which I loved. Yeah. Um, I wrote as an English assignment in grade seven a parody of Barney Miller that took place in a fire station hmm. for some reason. I don't know why, uh, you know, it was the beginnings of an understanding of the form that part of parody is to is to change things, right? right? And so so I changed it to a fire station for some reason. And then all the characters um, had both the hallmarks of the characters in the show, like Wojohovitz and so on. But also, uh, I made them students in the class and the teacher. So in that way, it was kind of a roast as well. So huh. I was doing a lot of things for a, for That's a, not bad. a 12-year-old. And... Uh, part of the assignment was that you read it aloud. And so I got up, and I had some feeling that it was going to go over well. I had some sense that it was going to do good. And sure enough, I started reading it, and people were literally, like, pissing themselves. And, oh, my God, did I ever feel powerful. And then the one thing that frustrated me was... I was I was too in love with the smell of my own farts, right? <laughs> and so, I uh, I would anticipate what kind of a laugh something was going to get, and I begin to giggle, um, and and so in some cases I was laughing as I was reading it, you know, even though I'd have written it and knowing it. And in one particular case, I felt that it it cut the joke, that it didn't nearly get as big a laugh as as it would have had I not fucked up like that. So you really started uh, learning the technical and, skills oh, yeah. and I made young a, and immediately. Yeah. And I'd already began to have an inkling of uh, the type of comics I liked. And one of the comics I liked very much was Bob Newhart. Yep. And then one of the comics I liked very much was Tommy Smothers. And so I began to understand that they were doing something, you know, which I later learned, or probably knew the term at the time, which was kind of deadpan. And so from then on in, until very recently, as a matter of fact, deadpan was my go-to as a performer. Uh, and uh, it actually, uh, this might be a little overstated, it actually enraged me, literally at the time, it actually enraged me how much enjoyment people got of Harvey Corman and Tim Conway mm. fucking up on the Carol Burnett show. I found it 
the height of unprofessionalism. Huh. And it's not like I'm a, I'm a textbook professional person. Trust me, right. anyone listening knows that I am, a, you know, I can be stunningly unprofessional in a number of ways. But this, this particular thing, laughing at your own shit or fucking up the sketch because you can't, you know, hold it together right. uh, was always very triggering uh, to me. And then it's still to this day and, you know, mildly irritates me when you produce a show and somebody goes, oh, that part where Stuart McLean screwed up and then he had to cover, that was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And it's like, oh, the thing that was an accident, that was somebody screwing up, was better than everything we prepared and got ready, right? Fuck you. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I thought, you know? But that's not what they mean. No. What they mean is it's alive, it's spontaneous, it'll never be repeated, right? That's what they enjoy. And it shows somebody is vulnerable. An appreciation. Yeah, how quickly yeah. you can think on your feet yeah. to address yeah. a, a problem. I mean, in the case of Stuart McLean, uh, it was all about, and Stuart knew this, it was all about juxtaposition and expectations. And so Stuart's uh, lav mic screwed up. Yeah. And so they had to come out uh, three minutes into his monologue. And, of course, it was such a coup for us to get Stuart. Um, you know, and he was right in the wheelhouse for our audience. And then so he's doing it, and then he realizes um, that, you know, nothing's coming out of the monitor. And so he kind of stops briefly. And then he... Uh, it was at the Pantages, so he's um, he's loud enough, you know, that he can say, you know, you would think the CBC, of all the things the CBC might be good at, keeping a microphone batteries operational might be one of them, right? <laughs> I get a huge laugh, right? And then Phil Cousy, who was our stage manager at the time, uh, comes out, and Phil was kind of a, he played a kind of character on the show because he was on and off all the time, so he you know, people kind of knew him as the poor guy that had to go and bug people and so on. And uh, he comes and he uh, tries to adjust the laugh on uh, Stuart. And then it's back on, and Stuart knows it's back on. And he says, uh, you don't have to fucking touch me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and poor Phil jumps back because he thinks it's, it's uh, that uh, Stuart's being seriously. Uh, the audience think he's being serious for one second. There's a huge gasp. You know, oh my God, the real, you know. And then, of course, Ever realizes he's well aware that this would be a very surprising thing for the creator of David Morley to say, and that's what the fun of it was, was to hear Stuart swearing. And, yeah, and so that, that, that moment was quite magical. Huh, okay. So... Um, you discover relatively young that you like being like, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the joke teller. Yeah. Um, you start learning what works for you and what yes. doesn't work for you. Yeah. Um, at what point did you decide, okay, maybe I'll try to make this a career of some sort because that is what happened? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like a lot of kids, you know, the... You know, this has been said many times. We didn't have the gay-straight alliance um, in, uh, in, uh, in the 1970s. And we also didn't have uh, places where people could really understand neuroatypicality. But in the 70s, if you were neuroatypical, there was something called the AV club, <laughs> right, or a computer club. And if you were on the kind of LGBTQ uh, spectrum, there was something called theater, 
right? And so, you know, we found theater and theater found us. And so got into theater. I think the first grade you could take it was maybe grade 11. I started to take that. Uh, probably the most instrumental classes I took. Um, we, I, I went to an incredible high school, George Henry uh, Secondary School in, in Toronto, and then uh, George, George Fanny after that. And in both cases, Woodbine, uh, in both cases there was uh, incredible, uh, interesting programs. And one of them was Cinema Studies, where we actually talked about Fellini and Truffaut. Oh. And then the How other I was... I wish I could have had a class I know. like that in high yeah. school. And then the other was Mr. McGee's uh, introduction to uh, theater. Okay. And in grade 11, we read uh, Pinter, Brecht, Beckett, Genet, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And then the novels we were reading in English were The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Huck Finn, uh, you know, and so on. And so this kind of liberal arts education... Uh, before I got to university was was incredible because by the time I got to university I was kind of moving away from you know being interested in school you know so so where did you go to university and what uh, did you I study? went to, I briefly went to York University okay you know for like a term maybe right. even three quarters of a term I had some aspirations uh, to go into uh, as some of my friends had at the time uh, BP Nickel. You know, okay, the, I remember the, you the, know, yeah. one of the most important uh, writers of uh, in Canadian history um, was teaching creative uh, art uh, writing at uh, York University, and you needed a kind of just a portfolio. And I do sincerely feel so that was the goal, and then the other was to get into the National Theatre School, right? And uh, that one I did audition for and kind of shit the bed. Um, I wouldn't say deliberately, but, but by attrition, I just kind of let it because I was scared that I wasn't going to get it, and so I yeah. sacrificed it. And then I don't know what happened with the BP nickel. I was already really starting to get kind of depressed and a bit lost, and the, the gender dysphoria and stuff were re really impacting me, and I was beginning to drink heavily. And so I just I lost a lot of these aspirations, and then I was getting into live uh, performing at the same time. But I do have some regret that I, I didn't complete that uh, program. Right. And I also sold poetry. Uh, by the time I was 16, I was selling poetry on the street of Toronto. Well, that's a very interesting. How do you stand and recite poetry and they give uh, a donation? I didn't. I would read something if somebody asked, but okay. I knew going downtown. I was starting to go downtown by the time I was 14, 15, buying records and so on. Yeah. And I would see there was two poets at the time. There were actually a few out there. Stuart Ross was one. He's still around. Mm -hmm. um, and Crad Kolodny, who was also quite famous. Um, and uh, they ended up, uh, you know, being important kind of cultural landmarks, both of these men. And Crad was, was a very kind and interesting human being. And uh, I think he kind of, you know, just... When I was out on the street there, he saw some vulnerability in, in me and they really supported and encouraged me and um, you know a lot of the writing in my little book wasn't very good but some of it was and he was very encouraging about that as well and it really began to see that I might have a kind of a tribe in people that were kind of creative right you know and um, and so that that was really good for it and then I met uh, a man called George Westerholm in grade 11 and we really hit it off 
and we began to write little comedy things together. And uh, we wrote a few and went and recorded them in a studio, uh, actually uh, Bob Ezrin's studio, Nimbus 9 in Toronto, where part of the Pink Floyd's The Wall was recorded. Okay. Uh, we just rented it, you Amazing. know. And we had this incredible rock producer uh, who, again, kind of took us under our wings with, like, our stupid little comedy. Um, and then uh, we made a little professional-sounding tape with some skits, and we took it around radio stations. And uh, we got interest from people, you know. It didn't really go anywhere big, but at the uh, part of that was that I ended up meeting Anton Leo, who became a very prominent uh, CBC producer and a prominent person in my life, the one that got me the job at Little Moss, and Ralph Benmergi. And so by the time I was 17 or 18, I was meeting these people who were a few years ahead of us. And then George and I decided one night on a drunken whim uh, to go down to Yuck Yucks and uh, do a show on Amateur Night. And so we got very drunk, and we had two songs. One was called Aunt May, uh, and then we had another one called uh, Hurry Up and Die George Burns. <laughs> and he was alive at the time, you know, so it was funny. <laughs> and uh, Hurry Up and Die George Burns was our kind of ticket into Yuck Yucks. And... We just had such a crazy energy, and we were so young and alcoholic and stupid. And uh, so people just kind of took to us, and Mark Breslin kind of took to us. And we were given a lot of opportunities. And so by the time I was 19, um, some of the night classes I was taking at the university were interfering with our ability to do yuck yucks. And it was the beginning, and this is just lucky, miraculous, you know, 1982, 1983, the beginning of what became known as the comedy boom. Right. And so just by sheer accident, we were around at a time when there were more opportunities for young up-and-coming stand-up comedians than there have been ever before. Did you end up touring across the country? We did all of that, yeah. you know, and worked with some incredible people and became friends, you know, with incredible people, you know. And um, many of them went on to to great and incredible things, you know, Norm MacDonald and, you know, and um, all the kids in the hall. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, we had a show when we were in high school called Live at the Ritz, which was at the Ritz Theater. And a group had come from uh, out west called The Audience. And then there was another group called Kids in the Hall. And that was a, a configuration of nine men all together. And sometimes... Some of these men would do stand-up. Sometimes they would perform together. Sometimes they'd split up the audience and the kids in the hall. And by the time that was over, there was the kids in the hall. And some of the people that were in both of these groups had gone on to other solo careers. And then not long after that, Scott would join. Right. And, and this was all wrapped into that kind of Queen Street art scene. And because we did a bit of music, we were kind of connected to that. And the Elma Combo was around, so we would open for like Squeeze and, you know, all our kind of heroes. We would go to England eventually and, and um, you know, be in the same room as like Billy Bragg and the Pogues. And, you know, it was, it was magical. So how long did this continue? How long were you a member of this? Uh, well, this George and I hero? were together yeah. uh, from about 1982 until we broke up just after we got back from Edinburgh the second time 
which was, I guess, around uh, 1990. Well, it's really a very good long run. It was a good long run, you yeah. know. And, uh, you know, the only sort of thing that I kind of regret was uh, just after we broke up, and it was kind of acrimonious, uh, mostly, I mean, George might disagree, but I think mostly because my alcoholic behavior was was kind of impacting our ability to have a career. Um, but basically, uh, we were broken up, but we were still, I would take the odd phone call, and they asked us to do a CBC television show called Comics. Hmm. And I ended up doing it as a solo performer. It was the first thing I'd kind of done solo. But he wanted Joe Baudelaire, who's gone now, uh, the producer, wanted George and I to be the first episode of comics. He was a big fan. And it would be nice to have that record. There's still document of us. George had a lot of it. We recorded an album with Shadowy Man on the Shadowy Planet, who were the kids in the hall, right. house band, among other things. And we videotaped a number of our shows and people, there's a lot of cassette tapes of us and, and stuff. And, but I just wish we had that document. Right. Because there's some things we did very well. And in some ways we were kind of, uh, you know, we had some good shit. And it was disappointing personally to see uh, a lot of acts uh, come out of that and really hit it out of the park. You know, they did so because, you know, they had things that we didn't have or maybe I didn't have um, that propelled them. You know, resilience, focus, all these kind of things. But they all admired us and a lot of what we did, you know, was similar to what they they were doing. But uh, Flight of the Concords, I mean, we were never as musically, not even close. George, maybe, but certainly not me. Um, uh, Corky and the Juice Pigs, you know, who ended up spawning Sean Cullen. And just a lot of these acts, you know, and so we, and we had opportunities, you know, we did TV pilots, you know, where we were performers and audition, auditioned for SNL. I mean, there were, all, all these opportunities came our, came our way. And so, I mean, we, we weren't looked over. I mean, we had, we had our chance. Um, and then, you know, there was a discussion as to whether or not we should move to Los Angeles, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, in some ways that would have been good. I think it would have killed me. Right. Yeah, you know, I would just have found other new drugs to do. Um, but so there was that, a, that it, it was it was a really, really, really uh, thrilling and exciting time right. uh, to be part of. It really was. It was just it was fantastic. Well, I'd be interested to hear how the uh, discussion of possibly moving to Los Angeles ended up with actually moving to Winnipeg. Well, yes. Well, <laughs> I mean, yes. Interesting, eh? Um, well, I mean, what happened with Los Angeles is that, you know, uh, both of us had decided, had, having seen a lot of our contemporaries go to Los Angeles, uh, that we didn't want to starve and suffer. And we had the good thing going in, in Canada. You know, we were both kind of living at home, but we, had, we made enough money that we could live happily and drink as much as we wanted. And so uh, part of it was that. Uh, part of it was, you know, fear. Um, and all those kind of things. But what happened was in 1989 or 88, uh, whatever the second Winnipeg Fringe was, Mm -hmm. George and I came to play the second Winnipeg Fringe at the Cauldron in the Exchange 
with a show called Unscheduled Stop, which we then took to Edinburgh in uh, 1989. And we played in Edinburgh. We had a very good manager at the time uh, who was also had been the manager of the specials, you know, mm-hmm. the Ska Group and the yeah. Damned. Yeah, you know, and was intimate with uh, Elvis Costello and all these people, and um, uh, didn't have a lot of clients, and really took a shine to us. So, I mean, that was incredibly empowering and exciting. Um, but you know, there was a lot going on in there, and um, and so you know, it it wasn't fun. It was very much like uh, stories you'll hear about Martin Lewis, Abbott Costello. Uh, the Everly Brothers, right? It's like a marriage. And it's hard. It really is. It's you know? hard to spend that much time with one other person yeah. doing creative work and traveling. So we had a, we had the kind of a, I would call sort of director, uh, Anthony, a wonderful man, who helped us kind of shape our act and was, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we gave him a bit of money when we could, but mostly he was doing this out of love. We'd met him at the Ritz Theater. And so... We, he came with us to England, and George's mother kindly paid for all of that. And uh, it got to a point where Anthony said, uh, you know, and you can get the response from the context, uh, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not going to talk to each other, then you'll just have to figure another way to convey information because I'm not going to fucking sit here and say, tell George... I'm not doing that, right? I'm a 35-year-old man, yeah. right? That's how acrimonious it was. And there was one night, one of the most horrible nights of my life, and I had, and neither of us really uh, got drunk before a show. And, but there was one show we did, and I was drunk, um, and it was sincerely a miscalculation, you know, where you're exhausted, mm. you know, uh, you may be taking a couple of days off, but, you know, I had three pints of beer before the show, which is, you know, not, uh, you know, something I couldn't easily tolerate. But it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was, it felt like going through mud. And there's a lot of timing in the show. And I was, I was fucking it up. And then at one point, uh, George does a solo number. I go off stage. Um, I would power smoke a cigarette backstage and uh and then i come out and i would do this kind of thing where i was like frankenstein mm. right i come out and do this little kind of thing that was a callback and i smoked a cigarette but for some reason um i was distracted or something happened and i didn't like the smoke right after i came backstage and so i ran out of time and i had uh, like half a smoke left and we were really, by this time, having been in, in the United Kingdom eight, nine weeks, we had no money. We didn't have a pot to piss in, which is part of the stress. And so I butted the cigarette out on the wall, the brick wall of the assembly rooms where we were performing, and I put it in my suit jacket. And then I came out. You know what's going to happen. I, 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 do hope, my, I hope I, it was really out. I do my Frankenstein, and then we go into the bit where there's a bit of patter between us, but... The show's not going very well, so the audience isn't really buying anything, and it's entirely my fault. And um, but for some reason, the patter is is going good. 
And then in a classic showbiz story, there's a George Goebbels story that's very similar in The Tonight Show where uh, George Goebbels is telling this tedious story. But the audience and the uh, Johnny and Dean Martin, who's a guest, are everybody's, it's killing. And it's just puffing up his ego, and he's actually making the story longer. Nobody's laughing at the story. Dean is flicking the ash of a cigarette into Goebbels' drink the whole time he's telling the story. And every time George Goebbels takes a sip, the audience go crazy, right? And so, same here. Uh, my jacket is basically on fire. Right. And, you know, that was probably one of the most humiliating onstage moments in my career. And, you know, trust me, I've vomited on stage, so, like, this is not, I've shit my pants on stage, so. There's just an I'm indication. Not, I'm not being hyperbolic. Is, yeah. And at the end of that, George was so upset. Uh, and then he wanted to, um, they wanted to do, like, a postmortem after the show. But I just wanted to get drunk and hide. And then I had a friend that I knew that, that I made in, 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 in Scotland. I wanted to spend time with her. And so I just kind of dismissed that as being unimportant and went there. And that just exacerbated everything. And so by the time I came back, George was standing on the bed, I remember, and he was going to go home. And there was about nine shows left. That was it. It was over. He was going to go home. And... Um, it was just devastating. And I knew there was no way that I was going to change his mind. And he'd already talked to his parents, and, and he was going. And I just felt like shit, and I felt bad for him. I felt bad for Anthony. I felt bad for everybody. Um, and then uh, we got drunk. We passed out. And then the next morning, uh, George got up, and, you know, he hadn't really packed his bag, but I still feel that he was moving towards, like, leaving. Right. And we were nominated for the Perry Award, hmm. um, which had come in, uh, come in out of the blue. And, uh, you know, it's, it was pretty significant. You know, this was the big uh, award for, like, you know, the types of shows we were doing. There are thousands of shows, thousands of shows, and so the fact our little show from Canada was kind of unheard of. Right. But we had gone on this show called uh, Loose Ends with this guy called Ned Sharon, who was involved, I think, with starting Monty Python. He was just this old British, I think he was an old queen, you know, and um, he took a shine to us. He really did, you know. Uh, he thought we were kind of adorable. And um, he was on the jury. And I think he held great sway, and he came on the good night, and we were, we were firing on all cylinders, and we were doing bits about Elvis Presley and Samuel Beckett performing together in Las Vegas, you know? So it was very much in the British wheelhouse, you know? And so we got this award, and so Rick comes and gives us all, like, 50 pounds and a bottle of wine and a pack of smokes, and he's brought lunch, and we're all going to go out for dinner. And so all of a sudden, we're all friends again, mm. you know, and then we dined out on that. And then a week later, when they announced the Perrier, uh, we didn't win. But the other artist who was in the same house as us, that was also Rick's client, won. So it was in the family. And so we got through the, the Edinburgh. But when we came back, that was the end. Right. That was the end of our relationship. And um, at that point... Um, I started working radio at CFRB in Toronto, 
my friend John Oakley got me a job there, and I was doing a late-night kind of talk show. And so it was bringing in a little bit of money. Uh, and then we had, we had a baby in 1992. Uh, but my drinking was, uh, was, was out of control. Right. You know, I used to do a joke. I would say that my drinking got so bad that my liver was considering suing me for a divorce. <laughs> but we decided to stick together for the sake of the kidneys. And, um, you know, that was kind of, you know, what, uh, what kind of state I was in. And my ex said, I don't want to live with you and raise a child with somebody with a serious an alcohol problem. Right. Right? And she was pretty clear on that, that it was about, that it was situational. Yeah. And then I said, you know, I'll talk to my doctor and I'll see what I can do. Because I took it seriously and I tried to stop. And I had tried to stop before. But for the first time, uh, when I tried to stop, I couldn't stop. I literally couldn't stop. Yeah. Best intentions, but I would try and I would fail. And I thought, okay, this is bad, then you're going to die. And so I went to my doctor, and uh, he got me in very quickly into Renaissance House in Toronto. I think a matter of two weeks. And that saved my life, too, because uh, I, could, I could see that close. You know, if it had been further down the road, I don't know if I would have made it. And so, you know, basically I kept drinking until, you know, 24 hours before I had to go in. And then um, I went in for the 28 days. And during those 28 days, and I was aware of this, um, my ex and I were already temporarily separated. And she went to Winnipeg with our daughter. And if I completed rehab and was committed to continuing to be sober, then I was welcome to join. And I phoned Ralph Benmergi, who I knew had been out here working at Nightlines, and I set up a bunch of stuff, um, hopefully to come uh, to fruition when I got here. And then, this is probably a side story, uh, so I won't, I won't bore you with it, but a whole bunch of uh, things ha had happened in Winnipeg uh, that had nothing to do with me that uh, made uh, all that go away, okay. you know? Uh, to put it simply, and I'm not protect, you know, uh, I'm not protecting people or anything like that. But I'm just saving time shorthand. But put it this way, the person that was going to open a lot of doors to me was cancelled okay. in that 2020 way. Uh, was cancelled the day I arrived in town. Cancelled to such a degree that even though I'd never met the person, I knew that they had. I'd spoken to him, and he was going to help me. Uh, he was on the cover in the newspaper. Okay. And I thought this don't bode well. Yeah. And so it took me uh, a while uh, to get all that organized, but eventually I kind of got into the CBC right. and into the beginnings of definitely not the opera as a freelancer, and that really uh, settled me down and solidified my, uh, my creative side and allowed me to get to a point where I was producing uh, uh, comedy shows for CBC and doing other kind of producing on afternoon shows and uh, being allowed to co-hosts when people were sick and so on and began this 20 continuing relationship with CBC as a as a freelancer you know that has been 
incredibly rewarding and impactful. And, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of because, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my, like I said, we were kind of cultured and my grandmother, and even though in our house we listened to CFRB, not CBC, I knew CBC was a sign that, right. you know, if, if you got something on CBC and then they paid you, you know, that, that was something to be kind of proud of as a You're performer. doing well in Canada. You're doing well in Canada. Yeah. And then so, you know, after a while, it's like, I mean, this isn't even like exciting anymore. It's like I'm actually getting a check from this organization every week, you know. And I thought, okay, maybe you've got, maybe you've got some talent there, you know. And I was still struggling with alcohol and struggling with something that I struggle with to this day, uh, which is... Um, issues around attention and to some degree around kind of uh, cognition, following okay. instructions, being able to maintain the routine and all these kind of things, um, debilitating. I mean, I'm sure that all of these issues are all intertwined and you can't take them apart from each other. You can't. Yeah. And this is what I talk, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have professional psychiatrist I can talk to once a week, you know, and a half yeah. for a year and a half. And I mean, this is something that we talk about, uh, you know, quite a bit. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And so I try to focus on the things that are good, you right. know. I mean, one of the things I can do as good as anyone in the world, I think, is uh, do my homework the night before, <laughs> you know, and have it, have it pass muster. But the older you get, the harder that is, and sure. I've burned, I've exhausted, I've emptied the tank on every stress hormone in my body. Yeah, you know, and now my body is kind of fighting back, and there's no question that my chronic gastrointestinal diseases are related to stress and anxiety around what I should be doing and I'm not doing or, you know, where I should be at and where I'm not at and right. what I could have done better and, uh, you know, feeling guilty and all these kind of things. Right. And he's just trying to teach me to, you know, handle that properly by just in trying to endeavor to do better every day, you know? Well, it's a never-ending process. It's a never-ending thing. You know, yeah. I was going to jam it in when you introduced me, but... Um, there is a famous story of a, uh, there was a Buddhist uh, symposium in New York uh, run by Uma's dad, Robert Thurman, okay. in the 1980s. And one of the speakers was a, uh, a Lama or Rinpoche from uh, Tibet. And uh, he was going to be one of the guests. And, you know, very, very white event and, and you know, for very upwardly mobile New Yorkers and still a lot of white people. Um, and uh, so people with money. And so they were going to put together this, you know, you pay three, $4,000 for this event, right? You know, it's a big, big money maker. And so they put together a catalog of all the things that are coming. And so they needed a CV, you know, from the, this, this llama. And uh, f there was a deadline. And so Thurman uh, kept calling. Uh, this monastery in Tibet. You know, this is years ago before things got really, really bad there. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of obfuscating and not calling back and so on. And, but finally gets hold of a nun that works there and he explains himself and she's incredibly apologetic and he knows about this and he'll send it to you and yes, uh, you know, it'll be in English and I'll help him with that or whatever. 
but uh, when you need it for, you know, four o'clock New York time, I, I, I assure you it'll be done. And so like at a minute to four, uh, this fax comes chugging in. And at the top, you know, somebody has typed in an ancient typewriter, you know, uh, you know, subject, you know, like uh, CV, you know, for, you know, Rimpshu, you know, and then it's kind of name. And then it's just a piece of white paper. And somebody has written clearly what he has said and, and asked to be translated in English. So it's just a piece of paper written in ballpoint pen, one mistake after another, <laughs> right? And that's his resume. And I just, you know, it's what I would love to aspire to, you know, and never even come close, which is, I mean, it's, it's true, right? Yeah. And that, that is our resume. Yeah. Is that we can continue to try to get by after making one mistake after another, after another, after another, after another, after another you know? Well, it's good to make mistakes. It means you're trying new I things hate, that are outside I of your comfort I hate zone. It. This is the biggest challenge yeah. of my life is to not be devastated by things that I have done. Right. You know, um, you know I, I'm one of these personalities that uh, does that kind of uh, pendulum swing between, you know, grandiosity and, and complete and utter uh, self-obliteration. Yeah, it's a classic alcoholic personality. Classic right alcoholic there. personality, yeah. yeah. And I just try to, I try to live in the middle, yeah. in the mushy middle uh, all the time. And it's hard because it's, it's routine and it's uh, stability and all the things that are value about it are all the things that we tire of very quickly. Yeah. Because we're looking for the little shiny objects that we can put in our nest, you know? Well, let's return to the timeline. So we're in Winnipeg, and you are working on the radio. And in 2001, you start working on developing the, uh, the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. That's right, yeah. There was uh, an incredible uh, producer, and uh, he's also an actor and musician, uh, Tom Anico, who worked in the uh, drama department, what used to be called the drama department of CBC uh, Manitoba. And I got to know him right away. He was the w one of the first people that actually tasked me with something at CBC um, to write some comedy for the afternoon show. And so right after getting out of rehab, this you know he tasked me with this, and I wrote things for him. And he just kept rejecting them um, as being not suitable. Um, and, but, you know, clearly he saw something in me and he introduced me to Bill Smith at, uh, definitely not the opera, which was at that time was Brand X. And that was a very good fit, right? Um, uh, in a lot of ways. And Bill was somebody who was instrumental, him and Chris Boyce, who ended up, um, running CBC radio for a while, uh, were instrumental in, in giving me that confidence and, and support. Uh, many, many people in there, Iris Uday and Susan Margetti, just Jane Chalmers, people at CBC that kind of took me under my wing, saw very quickly what my struggles were, but were also um, just would invest and believe in me and, and, and encourage me. And, and that really, really, really uh, helped me, you know, uh, get, get through that period. 
And uh, so one of those people was Tom. And Bill and I had worked on a bunch of uh, what I would call curated comedy specials. One was called A Canada. You know, and Bill had come to me and said, um, if, you had a, if we want to do a comedy show about the history of Canada, right? And then every comic was given like a chapter. And then they would actually write material from the show for the show, because nobody really has that much material about the Great Depression, for example. Sure. Is that something you think Canadian comics that you know could do? And I said, absolutely. And so we had the show, and Derek Edwards did, like, The Founding of Canada, and John A. MacDonald, you know? I mean, I still remember some of the jokes. Uh, one of Derek's joke was that you're talking about the time, um, and... Uh, how, uh, you know, it was a different time, not as, not as hygienic, uh, you know, not as much of an understanding of germs. You know, he was talking about how people wouldn't live very long. He said, yeah, might be a time when uh, you may hear this uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in a medical context in an operating room. All right, I guess we better start the procedure. Someone please hold my dog. <laughs> <laughs> that joke. And then Brent had one in the Brent Butt had one about the Great Depression where he said, you know, I uh, when CBC uh, asked me to co come up with a, some material on the Great Depression, I I I I, I went. And I sat down with my mom and I said, Mom, uh, can you tell me about the Great Depression? And already just at saying that, I could see a tear form in her eye uh, because she's not nearly that old. <laughs> 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 and so we did the show at the Franco Manitoban. And, uh, and it worked. And so we just kept doing it. And it was out of that. And, you know, it was Bill Smith's idea. Uh, but I do think that I, I, I brought a lot to the table in agreeing to do it, producing it, and then helping the comic shape the material. And uh, for many, many years, you were many, many years ago, artistic director. 90, 96, 97. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's, it's the first time, obviously, uh, we were basing it on things like concept and theme albums, you know, that had been done, the history of Canada. I mean, there was a lot of stuff like this in the 70s, and it was in the CBC Music Library. And so in no ways am I suggesting we invented this form. But these were mostly sketch performers and people with musical theater backgrounds. And as far as I know, in Canada at least, this was the first time people started to ask comics to create material. And so from that idea... We said, let's do a comedy festival like that. Tom did, actually. He said, could you take a show like A Canada, do it over a weekend? Could we then sell tickets? And I might be able to help you get grant money, you know, show you how to fill out, and we get, get some grant money. And then he was on the board of the gas station theater at the time, we do it through the gas station theater, and you go work for the gas station theater, and they'll pay you with the kind of grant money that's coming in, and then CBC will give you a bunch of resources, and then in exchange, CBC will be able to broadcast this material. Do you think this is something that could be done? And I said, absolutely. And that's, that's how it started. Okay. And so Tom and I went to the gas station, and we said, um, hey, theater that's uh, struggling, what do you think of this? And they said, 
that's amazing. So you're going to give us a whole bunch of money, and then you know we don't have to really think about it. That's amazing. And so that's that's what we did. And then that was um, in maybe like March of uh, 2001, and then the idea was almost kind of about a year later, you know, we were going to do an event. I think we picked a date sometime in that fall. And basically at that time it was just me, and then Jason Andrich uh, came along as well. And uh, January 21st, I believe it was, um, Anton Leo had moved from radio into television. And he flew in with uh, Fred, I can't remember his last name, Nicolaitis, uh, two major CBC television producers. And they said, show us this radio festival you're going to be doing. Yeah. And I laid it all out. And then, I, uh, I don't know, I, I always tear up when this happens. I don't think this like has ever really happened. But we did this production, and... Anton and Fred went out into the hall, and they came back in. Um, actually, it happened with Little Mosque on the Prairie, too. They came back in, and they said, okay, let's do it. Let's make these into television shows. And we're like, what the fuck? And so between January 21st uh, and March, around March 21st, so like two months, three months, um, these we were now going to make four television shows of these shows we produced. Now... This was only conceivable because 95% of the, the actual infrastructure and logistical part of producing a television show was done by Anton and the people at CBC. Um, but, you know, I had to, still a major role. Right. The things that they were filming were the things that I was going to bring to them and I have on stage. And the festival was going to get people from A to B and, and do all these kind of things. And, and we did it. You know, we, we ended up hiring a few more people, but... There was about five of us. There really was on, on the live side. Right. And it was the biggest year, I believe, because we took in about $30,000 after we paid for everything. Right. And then it went to our heads. And in year two, uh, we lost twice that and more. Um, basically, had to go uh, with our hand out to CBC. Uh, they kind of covered it. Uh, and then we went from there. And, right. you know. And now it's been around for 20 years. And now it's been years. around for 20 years, yeah. you know, which is magical, magical, yeah. you know, and that's really because of all the people that have been there, you know. I mean, I've really come to the a, a place of acceptance that, you know, I'm, I have, I'm a good idea person and uh, I can be motivated for a short period of time on, on certain kind of things and, and um you know, have a lot of very creative ideas, and as a performer, you know, I can add to a show, you know, but I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not right. a business person. I'm not a paperwork person. Right. You know, um, and so I have to accept that. Yeah. You know, and often I don't. I still continue to think I'm capable of many, many things. I'm really not. Well, <laughs> as far as being capable of many things, I'd love to talk a little bit about your work on the television shows that you've worked yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, this is an amazing jump into a different part of the... Uh, oh, it's a really different world. Yeah. I mean, the money was unheard of, and I mean, it's not even like compared to the United States. It's really not significant, but for people in the arts, you know, and certainly... And was it enjoyable work for you? 
Yeah, in some, in sometimes and in some ways. Um, you know, it's getting better now uh, because of n- n- me too, to some degree. But like uh, right now, I'm not talking about like sexual behavior and and so on. But uh, just the idea of the way that people treated each other um, in that world uh, was very different when I grew up. And I had been raised on um, that kind of world, which is that, you know, the player, you know, and, um, you know, the films of Martin Scorsese, you know, that basically it was like organized crime. It's just very aggressive, very loud, just demanding things get done, you know, that kind of thing, you know. And, uh, you know, it suited my personality at the time. And so I participated to that in some degree, too, in ways that, you know, I now find horrifying and embarrassing, you know, that you just focus on the prize and just, you know, enact people to, to make this shit happen, even ignoring their personal lives and ignoring all those kind of things. And so that part of it, uh, I didn't like, you know, um, I didn't like it when I behaved like that. I didn't like when people behaved like that to me. And also it really felt like you had to scrape and claw for everything. And, uh, you know, that creatively, um, for better or worse, you know, I can't keep my mouth shut. And so when things or choices were made, that I didn't really accept, even if they were completely out of my department, I would tend to be a bit mouthy, okay. you know? And so these, these parts were all very challenging. But that first year on Little Mosque on the Prairie was was very significant, and that whole early development process to take a television show and a script that had gone around three, four times, and where everyone thought now is the time to make a TV comedy about Muslims, um, be very good for the world. Um, at the same time, uh, the script that was on the table was problematic, and so Anton brought me in. I went to a meeting in Toronto with the executive producers. They talked to me about the script. I said a lot of things to them about what I thought we should do. Uh, They liked what I heard. And myself and Rebecca Schechter and Zarka, uh, who had created the show um, and co-wrote the original script, uh, began to work on a new script. And then we handed in a new script. They loved the new script. And then um, the guy that was at CBC uh, at the time that came over from... Francis Coppola's uh, studios, I can't remember his name. We went into a meeting with him. Uh, it was myself and Rebecca. I don't think Zarka was there. I think Zarka was back in Regina, and Susan, who was the producer at the time, and he was supposed to have read the two scripts and gave us notes, and he said, I just think the timing is the most important thing about this project. And I said, I just blurted out. I said, I completely agree. I said, now is the time to do this show, right? And I'm not just saying that because, uh, you know, if we do it, then, you know, that would be very good for my career. I just think <laughs> now is the time to do the show. Well, it and, was the time to do the and show. And it was the time to do the show. And he said, you're right, and we're going to do the show. Yeah. And we're going to shoot the first episode in the pilot in Regina. And then that was it. And then we shot the first episode in the pilot, uh, there was a major casting change um, right at the top, which was very stressful. And then uh, they ordered eight. And the next thing you know, I'm in Toronto, and I'm uh, in the beautiful condominium 
and I have a major role in the creation of the first season of this television show. And then they bring in Dan Redkin and a few other writers, and we make these eight shows, and I've never been happier in an environment in my life. And then season two, uh, I really felt that the feel of the show had changed dramatically. I wasn't alone in that. Um, it just became a bit toxic. Um, I don't think my behavior um, reduced that toxicity very much. Um, at the end of it, I was uh, physically sick, and I just said, I don't want to go back. Right. Uh, and I told them, I said, I'm not coming back, basically. And then I walked away from over a quarter of a million dollars, and I phoned my partner, and one of the things uh, that you know I continue to admire about the mother of our child is that she was very supportive of these kind of decisions. And uh, so, and then I made that decision and I was in hospital for 15 days with the same issues. It was really the beginning of my gastrointernal issues. And then, as happens often in life, um, the show went through various incarnations and then one day there was a final season and those that were last were now first again and Rebecca was rehired as the executive producer to try to return it to the spirit of the original show, for better or worse, and she reached out to me and hired me. And I came back, somebody left uh, during the last season, and then I got to come back for the last seven or eight episodes of the show, and then I was allowed to, with Rebecca, write the final two episodes of the show. And, and that was that very meaningful for me. For it was good closure for, for you. It uh, really allowed you to come, come all the way around. It was really meaningful yeah. to me that myself, Rebecca, and Zarka uh, could put these characters to bed in a way that I felt was closer to how they had been when we conceived of them. Right. And so I'm glad that happened, you know, and I'm so grateful I had an opportunity to go back and be part of that, you know. And then, you know, say what you want about the. The, the show itself, or the quality of the show or stuff. I, I, I think the first season remains really, really strong, funny, family, situational comedy. But I worked on something that's shown in 60 countries. I work on something that Harvard used in a study um, to measure whether or not positive pop culture impressions of people change people's attitudes toward them and they used Little Mosque on the Prairie as an example and there was a demonstrable increase in favorable impressions uh, to Muslims after people had watched the show right. versus watching uh, a non-related show in the control experiment and that means a lot to me it really means a lot to me and I'm also proud of the fact that on September 11, 2001, I became obsessed with this global event. Um, I didn't know much about Islam. I mean, I knew the basic principles of Islam, but people were talking about Muslims, and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, and all the names, Muhammad Atta, and you know, all the various uh, Saudi terrorists, and then I'm like, wait a minute, I guess every person that I went to public school who was maybe kind of uh, a person of color, often, uh, 
and whose name was Mo, hmm. was actually Mohammed, mm-hmm. right? And then I'm like, and it's not like I didn't know there were mosques in Canada, but I'm like, this community has been here, right? In our midst, so to speak, you know, uh, for so long, just like all the other immigrants. And I've never felt any desire to be prejudiced against this group of people. And as a matter of fact, every time I meet these people, um, and sometimes even when they seem a bit conservative, um, you know, because of their dress or their demeanor and stuff, they just, for the most part, it seems like an incredibly loving and warm culture. And that was always the impression. And so I just deep dove into learning about Islam and learning about Muslims and I, I, I began to develop, and I've always been a spiritual person, I, I developed a great deal of affection for the faith and for the people, for the Ummah. And uh, so when I got to Little Mosque in the Prairie three years later, you know, you had I, laid, I, I had done laid my, re- I had done my yeah. research, Okay. you know, and, uh, and so I was very sensitive to things that were I felt like westernizations. Right. I didn't want people who were from a certain background to behaving in a way that was ridiculous. And it felt, especially in season two, that we were pushed into doing that every single day. And so that was part of what I, you know. My God, I met a woman and her daughter, white ladies, 60, and then her daughter was in her, uh, this lady was in her 50s, maybe 60s at the time, and then her daughter was maybe 25 or 30, converted to Islam after mm. watching Little Mosque on the Ferry. You know? Some might say that's a bridge too far, but for <laughs> me, that's just incredible, you know? And not specifically, but they watched the show. I guess they were seeking, and they're like, well, this sounds, you know, I would have never thought of this faith group, you know, because, you know, of what I might have heard about women and so on. And then, you know, but, you know, and to this day, uh, I feel very comfortable in, uh, in a mosque. I feel very comfortable around Muslims, uh, very comfortable around Arabs. Uh, I just, you know, I, I just, I love, I love the community so much. And since transition, um, you know, I just, I've been so accepted in that community, you know, and when I go to vigils, if, if there's tragedy in the community and stuff, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so accepted in that community. And it's so validating, you know, when you do transition, right, to encounter places where gender is so rigid, um, or gender roles, I say, gender norms, are, are so traditionally rigid, right, that you behave in, in, in specific ways that are, are predictable, right, if you are, you know, uh, uh, a practicer, you know. And so in the case of uh, Islam, uh, with some cultural variations, but for the most part, um, women don't touch men, you know, that are not their children or their partner. And so often... Not always again, but often if you go to shake, if you're a male and you go to shake a Muslim woman's hand and she's, you know, traditional, uh, she may not shake your hand. She might, but one that is off the table is uh, things like embracing, hugging, kissing, you know, these kind of things are just, they're, 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 they're. And um, anyway, 
um, as soon as I transitioned, that evaporated. Okay. Even amongst much more elderly women and women in uh, communities that would be much more traditional and who have never seen a trans person in their life, you know. And uh, some with some women I know have, have joked that in some cases, uh, maybe, uh, and I just share this for humor more than, you know, that it's necessarily a sociological comment, but that in societies where women are so undervalued that the idea that anybody would, uh, would choose, you know, at least to, you know, because I didn't choose to be transgender, but I chose to transition and present, that anyone would choose that. They must be serious, right? There must be something serious about that, that you would, you would make that choice. So this is not frivolous, it's not crazy, and so there's this kind of acceptance of it from, from that kind of standpoint. And like I said, that's just more for humor. I don't know that that uh, holds any water, but you know, I just, that whole process of being involved in that show yeah. um, was really, really uh, quite profound. And then the other experience, of course, that I had before Elon Musk was um, working on um, Monsoon House with Russell, which again was a show that was about a place that I, you know, consider my spiritual, I have huge spiritual connection to India. You know, there's just two places in the world that um, ever since I was a child, I've been very drawn and attracted to. One is India and one is Russia. And so I've always been very interested in both these kind of communities and cultures. And so when Tom wanted to work and do something maybe with Russell, um, I came up with this idea with my friend Bruce Cart um, about a, a book publishing house and how Russell uh, screws up a movie project. He's gone down, he's kind of the bad son. He's gone down to Hollywood uh, to try to make it in the movies. His dad thinks that that's disgraceful. Uh, he bankrolls a movie with money that's not really his uh, and uh, sinks the company and they almost go bankrupt. So in order to punish his son, he makes him leave Hollywood and come back and help him run the business and take it out of the, out of the trouble. And then Russell tries to apply his show business mentality to the world of Canadian publishing and the jokes, as they say, proceed from there. But again, I had chosen, you know, this culture, and then season two, um, somebody writes a poem called The Prophet, mm -hmm. and even though it's P-R-O-F-I-T, mm -hmm. uh, somebody gets very upset, and so he's caught up in this kind of satanic versus kind of international thing. Uh, and then, you know, and so season two, uh, we really went to town sound effect-wise, and they end up in Mumbai, and there's guns and all this kind of stuff. and. I had just drilled down and just done a tremendous amount of research. I already knew a lot about the community and all the actors were helping. You know, the actors had grown up in India or were from India and so on. And uh, so that, that helped me with Little Moss. But it's really something, you know, that I think back on right now um, because I don't think I do it anymore, right? I mean, basically I created a show about brown people, right. starring brown people. Uh, and uh, I have no actual connection other than love. Now, that's not to say I don't think that fundamentally 
uh, and then would sort of stop me from doing it. I would just say that right now, uh, the way things are and so on, um, I really support the choice now. Different choice. I really support the idea of amplifying uh, those voices and so on. But a fundamental hallmark of what I was doing, which I think as an artist, if we want to get back into actual process talk, what I was doing was something I think is entirely valid, which is I was just drilling down to the basic universality of human experience and then also acknowledging and having understood growing up in Glasgow in the United Kingdom um, that much of how we see India and certain people in the Indian community and how people in the Indian community uh, fare and assimilate and do all these kind of things is based on the idea that it was, that it was colonized. And so it's steeped in British influence. And so Russell's father, Cash, his, his practical slogan is bloody hell, Russell, bloody hell. And so as Russell would say in interviews or when Russell and I were interviewed together, all that I have done is I've just taken English people and I've transplanted most of their characteristics into Indian people and you're not going to go wrong because there are a tremendous amount of similarities. Uh, we are all products of the Commonwealth, for right. better or worse, you know. But a lot has happened since I wrote that show. Now, out of curiosity, mostly, and just because I found uh, the DVDs or the CD uh, collection, um, I listened to them, you know, uh, just to see in hindsight. And I was pleased that overall uh, there was nothing that really made my, my eyes roll. There were things, you know, that I wrote or said, and this was pre-transition, that maybe characterized if you were, you know, going to be a bit hard on the writer as being somewhat homophobic, you know, maybe even in some cases slightly transphobic, you know, um, but but jokes, you know. Yeah. And so these are something we, we, we're challenged with as artists right now, things we said and did in the past. And creatively. we're all up against it, I mean... Uh, yeah, we're, we're not dissimilar ages. Oh and yeah, I think and about I mean, things that I wrote or said. Oh my gosh, years yeah. ago, well, and they're uncountable. They're yeah. uncountable. And I mean, uh, you know, this is um, this is something I share every day. Um, I hope not defensively, but just contextually, which is that um, I grew up in a very racist time. Maybe not as racist as some, but racist enough. Yeah, you know. And uh, pejoratives um, were said with impunity. Um, violence against minorities, um, you know, was, was done with impunity to some degree. Um, I really had no connection with people that were from different cultures, including, as I said, Catholics. And so that does foster suspicion. Uh, my parents were products of their generation and so I wouldn't characterize them as being certainly they yeah. were not more so than average people and they became very very tolerant and accepting the second they came to Canada especially around sexual minorities you know and my dad um, you know that took a bit of work but very quickly you know he, he was there you know and so by the time I came to transition you know they had done that work um, of not looking like dinosaurs as well, but 
That was the world we lived in. I had a gollywog. You know those dolls? Yeah. You know? I if you saw that them. Ricky Gervais episode mm-hmm. of Extras, the Scottish woman in it has a collection at home. She still has them. And she has a hard time understanding why you're so mortified, right? Because to her... And so this doll I had, this racist doll, which is, uh, you know, it's kind of a tall black man and then usually in a kind of red and white striped vest and mm-hmm. a banjo. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, it was a minstrel kind of a figure. But I adored this doll. I adored the doll with my best friend. And at no time do I have any uh, um, memory of having any other affection uh, towards the doll, but 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 complete and uh, utter unrequited love. You sure. know, the doll didn't give it back because it was stuff. <laughs> um, how and on television, uh, one of my shows that I enjoyed watching was a television show that ran in Glasgow, I believe, on Sunday nights called Black and White Minstrels. And the first oh, part goodness. of the show was kind of classic Irishy, Celticy, folky songs, and then the second part of the show was blackface and minstrels. And I liked that part because it was um, ostensibly meant to be funny. Sure. Right? And because they were big, you know, in that sense, and they were colorful in that sense. And as a child, I thought it was all fun and funny. Right. I didn't realize, you know, as, as I got a little bit older, you know, maybe nine or ten, I began to get some sense. And obviously by the time we came to Canada, uh, we understood that this was completely and utterly uh, wrong, but there is a story of um, when I saw the first black person I'd ever seen in Glasgow. I did point to this person and refer to them by the name of the doll. Oh, there we and go. The, per- the person heard. Yes. And there was a conversation. I don't know if I have a direct memory of this or just a memory of the story being told. And you know, some explanation as to why you know I might have said this or whatever. And you know, it didn't cause any major consternation or whatever but i remember even at the time although i don't recall the specifics but just just the idea that in any way i would have been at fault you know is risible i don't recall my parents like piling on me my parents would obviously have been very embarrassed um but um just that basic idea of it and it's why i feel comfortable talking about it because it's just it's from a place of complete naivety and innocence well and it's good to remember and mark that as slow as progress does feel that we are bending towards a better society over time yeah yeah well, uh, one would one would hope one would hope you know when i remember um the f- when i went to university in the 1980s um certainly the acceptance of uh people of uh, along the spectrum of sexuality yeah. and gender it just wasn't there yeah. in the way that it is now. Oh, yeah. Uh, times have changed and for the better. Well, you know, I mean, I grew up, I mean, you know, Brad Fraser, you know, who I follow on Facebook. I don't know if I've ever actually been in the same room as him, but there's someone I admire incredibly, and we've certainly chatted on, on the various social media platforms, and I'm a huge fan of his work, and I just finished reading his biography. And He's very uh, much on this uh, uh, kind of uh, topic, you know, of, of uh, you know, things changing over time and, and, and uh, 
reminding people how bad it was. Um, you know, I went on a bit of a terror. Uh, I've tried to, for the sake of my mental health, trying not to c kind of get too histrionic on Facebook. But uh, there was there was a time about maybe a year and a half ago where I was getting so sick of people praising uh, Christy Blatchford um, after she passed away. Um, and uh, I just felt I had to speak up, and so did Brad. Um, because not only did I work with this person, um, you know, at CFRB and, and, and be aware of some of their opinions, but their opinions on indigenous people and, and queers and uh, trans people um, were disgusting. And she was not alone. Uh, almost every major colonist, I was thinking this the other night that I can think of, um, would have said uh, career-ending things about homosexuals uh, with alarming frequency. You know, Barbara Amiel, you know, of course. Margaret Wente, of course. Barbara Kay, of course. But even some of, uh, you know, uh, Worthington Bonakowski, you know, until he had a Damascus moment, Michael Corrin, you know, um, but with varying degrees of, of, of offensiveness. But we grew up in a time where John Simon was the theater critic of uh, the nation for years and actually said out loud that he, hopes, that he hoped AIDS killed every single uh, effort in the theater, right? And he said it, variations of that, over and over again for 35 years. And it wasn't until very close to his death that the nation got rid of him. And then he still had a platform and a website for 40 years of repulsive homophobia against people in an industry that is driven by queers, mm. you know? And, um, you know, part of the challenge you have with cancel culture, you know, to some degree is that it's always playing catch up, you know, and so somebody may say, say something, you know, um, that really isn't uh, on that level, but still may suffer consequences, you know. Um, and I don't think at the end of the day that people who really have been barred from, you know, any kind of meaningful return, um, are necessarily um, the most sympathetic cases. Um, of course, you know, it's going to be a tool that's leveled somewhat in unfairly, but at a time when Trump and people like Trump continue to behave with impunity on the most egregious level, you know, it's hard to kind of mete out that kind of justice. And so, it's why I, I'm much more attracted to calling in, you know, as opposed to calling out. I like that. But I was very uh, taken with it. You know, it's, it's powerful. Seductive. It's seductive. Yeah. You know what they say, the number one killer of alcoholics, not alcohol, resentment. Mm. And I do believe that... Um, 
all fascism is motivated by resentment, number one. And fascistic um, or reactionary elements within any group, even if it's not ultimately designed uh, as fascist by definition, anytime resentment is a part of the puzzle, it's, it's going to be politically problematic. You know, it's probably one of the most destructive forces, which is uh, wait, wait till I'm in charge. Right. And then you'll see, right? And uh, it's just not—it's uh, just not the way to go. It never works. I remember a story by Ray Bradbury, and I believe it's in the Martian Chronicles, called "The Other Foot." And I believe it takes place on Mars, but it may not. But anyway, it's a planet where uh, Jim Crow and segregation um, have existed. But they're, and probably written uh, during the time of Jim Crow and segregation, but as the title suggests, somehow overnight the shoe is on the other foot. And now those that were the less are now the most, mm. and they can do one of two things they can improve things or they can seek revenge. And they choose, once the shoe's on the other foot, to go to, go, to take a different route, you know, and, you know. It's obviously the healthier choice and the way to, the way to go. But certainly within myself, if there was some characteristic that I would always work to identify and tampen down, it would be hallmarks of resentment. Right, feeling that, uh, as as Hank Williams says in, uh, nobody's lonesome for me. <laughs> I love Hank. And nobody's lonesome for me. So it's, yeah, everybody's loving somebody else. Nobody lonesome for me. Everybody's crying for somebody else. But nobody cares about me. And then he talks about being cheated out of his rib, right? <laughs> Which would be out of, a, out of a woman, right? Adam's rib. But anytime I feel I've been cheated out of my rib, whatever that rib might represent, um, you know, I think of that little song, you know, which is just a, it's a testimony to... To self-pity. Pull back in your own resentment. Pull back into my own thing and think, I don't want to be that resent. And, um, and it can't happen here. Uh, Sinclair Lewis's novel about the arrival of fascism in, in America, which unfortunately is one of his later novels. And so he's losing a bit of his um, style. He's losing a bit of his uh, kind of ability to string a plot. He's lost a bit of his sense of humor. And he's a bit angry. At the same time, there's a disgruntled gardener that is the gardener of one of the key figures in the book who is full of resentment right from day one. And you know very quickly how quickly he's going to ascend the fascist ladder and be in a position where he now has power over those who have looked down on him for so long. Mostly rightly so. Mm-hmm. Right, they didn't look down on him as a human being. They looked down on him as a, as as a human being full of anger and and you know disgruntled personality and so on and so on and so on. But you know he 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 gets his revenge. You know, in some ways that seems to be what Mr. Putin is doing right now in terms of the collapse, the greatest crime of the 20th century. You know, being 
in his mind, anyway, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. I don't think many people would uh, concur, you know. Well, along this topic of resentment, I resent that we are running out of time because I think that I could uh, listen to you talk about these things all oh, day long. Oh, you're very kind. Um, you thank could you. always We could always do more. <laughs> thank you so much for Thank you in. so much. Interviews for Live at the Gargoyle take place on the stage of the Gargoyle Theatre in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and are recorded, edited, and produced by the mighty Rebecca Drieger. If you like today's show, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. Giving us a positive review will help new listeners find us, which will in turn help us in our mission to support these incredible creators. 